Hi, I'm George Hirsch. And I'm Alex Getzfried. This week on George Hirsch Lifestyle Radio, we're setting off on a global expedition. From the polar Arctic ice to memorable meals, our thirst for adventure and appetite for exploration is taking us to the furthest reaches of our planet. We'll be joined today by climate scientist Professor Dr. Marcus Rex, who's found meaning in some of Earth's most desolate, darkest places. And he shares his findings in a new episode of PBS's Nova series. And later we'll meet up with travel journalist and fellow TV host, Joseph Rosendo of PBS and Create TV's Travel Scope to talk about some of his most meaningful expeditions. The cultural experiences that I had were so rich and so much a part of my childhood that I hungered to have those kinds of cultural experiences wherever I went after that. It's time to come together on George Hirsch Lifestyle Radio. Is there a connection between the dramatic changes in the Arctic climate system and the fast retreat of Arctic sea ice affecting the global climate. The research on the Arctic climate system is crucial. One such study, the largest scale Arctic research expedition of all time, was a journey to one of the most desolate, cold, and darkest places on our planet on the icebreaker polar stern for Mosaic. The Mosaic project spent an entire year trapped in the Arctic ice with an ambitious goal to freeze a research ship into the ice north of Siberia and spend a year drifting into the Arctic Ocean, gathering as much data about the surrounding environment as possible. Joining us is one of the world's leading scientists, Expedition Lead of Mosaic. The expedition was recently broadcast on PBS's Nova Arctic Drift, A Year Into the Ice. Professor Dr. Marcus Rex leads the section Atmospheric Physics of the Alfred Wigner Institute Helmholtz Center for the Polar and Marine Research in Germany and is Professor for the Atmospheric Physics University of Potsdam. We're honored to welcome you, Professor. I trust you are warm and safe right now. (laughs) I am, I am. I'm back on land and I'm in my cozy and warm office uh, right now. Well, this is an amazing undertaking, this this expedition. And I had kind of read about it some time ago that it, when you set out to, do the study and how you were going to to approach this it it was it was like approaching a mission to mars that you knew as much about that region as as we do on mars a bit that blows my mind well uh maybe may uh, going to mars is uh, even much more difficult and uh we probably have uh, uh, even Worse understanding of the uh, of the Mars uh, system and the climate on Mars than we have in the Arctic, but it's true. Our understanding of the climate system in the Central Arctic is actually very limited, and the reason for that is uh, that uh, even now in climate change uh, in winter, the Arctic is covered by a thick layer of ice which we can't break with even with our best uh, modern research icebreakers, and therefore we have always been locked out of that region in winter. Uh, Now we have uh, taken that approach to uh, just go there and drift with the ice across the polar cap uh, close to the North Pole. That gave us that access and therefore we could explore the region for the first time with our full scientific equipment. Now, part of your uh, planning had to do with you couldn't, you know, you're not steering the ship. It it, it had to kind of lock into the ice and then you're at the mercy of, of nature. 
Absolutely. We have been uh, at the mercy of nature. Nobody could tell where the expedition would go. Uh, we didn't know where we would be the next day or uh, the next month or certainly not where this expedition would end after one year. It worked out pretty well. Uh, the ice drift behaved. Uh, it uh, took us uh, roughly along the track that we uh, wanted to travel, uh, but nobody really could tell when we, when we started it. How many miles did you actually drift during the course of the expedition? Uh, the drift is a zigzagging motion. Uh, so along that uh, zigzag line, um, the drift was uh, around 3,000 kilometers. That's a, that's a fairly large distance. Um, but uh, if you connect it by a straight line, then it's uh, closer to 1,500 kilometers drift. So now just so that people can visualize at home who are listening, basically the vessel was brought up there while it was still a little bit warm and then the ice freeze happened around the ship itself. And then it just drifts in a block of ice. Absolutely. That's the approach. In summer, the ice is thin. Um, and uh, the Siberian coast is even ice-free nowadays. It's easy to travel uh, along the Northeast Passage from the Atlantic uh, sector of the Arctic to the uh, far eastern areas of the uh, Siberian coast, even in open water. And from there, we made our way into the ice with our powerful icebreaker, polar stands as possible in summer. Uh, and then we just stopped the engines and uh, let us freeze in. Um, obviously, uh, as the seasons progressed uh, from f fall into winter, the ice then grows thicker and locked us in. And then we were at the mercy of the ice drift and we just traveled with the ice. Now, this wasn't just a handful of, of scientists that got together. This was a global effort that took place. Uh, how did, again, run us through some of your planning steps in, in establishing this, uh, this project. That, that's the only way to do such a thing. It was a massive endeavor. Um, 20 nations came together and combined their forces uh, to make it possible. We, we have operated seven research vessels and icebreakers to support our flagships, the Polar Stern, uh, during the expedition. And uh, we had uh, overall, since all these 20 nations had international teams, we had 37 different nationalities on board. So the planning was quite complicated. Uh, it was going on for a decade, roughly. The first ideas uh, for the expedition came up in the uh, a decade before before we started, uh, and then uh, we worked toward making it happen. And uh, it was a very interesting experience to see how the momentum uh, in all these nations started to grow, so that in the end we all came together and then made it possible. Now you're also dealing with the elements. I mean, we're talking about extreme cold dark uh, polar bears. <laughs> polar bears. <laughs> How close lots, were you to a polar of, bear, Professor? <laughs> lots of lots of polar bears. Uh, and uh, I've, I've been on, on many Arctic expeditions and I've encountered polar bears at a distance of uh, 30 or 40 meters, uh, which is a situation you want to avoid. We had a very uh, comprehensive polar bear safety concept to, to avoid those close uh, encounters. But it still happened because during the polar night, half of the expedition was in the complete darkness of the polar night in winter. It's just not that easy to detect a polar bear that uh, roams out there on the ice. Um, still, the polar bear safety concept has worked. Um, we Nobody got injured, no polar bear got injured, and uh, uh, we, we were all safe. But it's it's not easy to do work uh, in that environment. It's cold, we had fierce storms, uh, the ice is a very dynamic surface. Most of our work actually uh, took place on the ice, not on the vessel. And uh, the ice was in constant motion, um, always uh, new cracks in the ice. Sometimes the pressure gets so high 
ice, so high that the ice breaks up and the different, the, these blocks of ice just move on top of each other. It's a very dynamic surface and doesn't make our work uh, easier out there. What is the nature of the actual research itself? Are you drilling for core samples in the ice or are you just monitoring the actual climate up there? What's like the day-to-day -day tasks of, of your team? Hundreds of tasks. So we had a weekly schedule, uh, which uh, was uh, repeated throughout the expedition so that we uh, ended up with a very comprehensive and coherent data set uh, of the full year of the uh, sea ice uh, cycle in the Arctic. Um, as you said, drilling holes into the ice was part of it. We uh, made measurements down to the ocean floor, down to 4,000 meters below the ice in the, in the water column. Uh, we had a tethered balloon uh, taking measurements up to uh, 1.5 kilometers, very detailed measurements up to 1.5 kilometers in the atmosphere above the ice. And then we had these free flying uh, research balloons, uh, huge balloons filled with helium, which uh, took measurements up to 30 kilometers above the ice. So we really looked at the full system. We studied the, the atmosphere, the snow ice system, the ocean, the biogeochemistry. There is interesting chemistry going on in that system. And of course, the ecosystem. I mean, what do these little creatures, these species do during the long month of winter? Uh, do they hibernate? Are they still active? Nobody knew before we started out. Is this the first uh, attempt at this type of research? I know there was an expedition many years ago from a, a scientist from Norway, but is this the most recent or the most thorough that's been done? Matt? In, in that particular region of the Arctic, in the central Arctic, the transpolar uh, drift system, it was the first uh, year-round expedition which could study the Arctic uh, system for a full year with a modern research icebreaker. I mean, it goes back to uh, 130 years ago, in 1893 to 1896, <laughs> Fridtjof Nansen did a similar expedition with a wooden sailing boat. Uh, he returned uh, safely from the Arctic. Uh, nobody could believe that. Uh, everybody thought, okay, these guys are, we will never see them again. But three years later, after they started the expedition, they returned from the ice, big surprise. Um, of course, they, they were scientists. They focused on science. They carried out measurements, temperature measurements, very variable temperature measurements. We are still using those. And then it goes on. Uh, more than 20 years ago, we had a major expedition, the Shiba expedition, not in the transpolar drift system, uh, not in the proper central Arctic, uh, but in the Beaufort yeah. Sea, also on sea ice. Uh, extremely valuable results uh, from, from that expedition, but from a different region in the Arctic on completely different ice conditions. Uh, the ice is uh, there, the Arctic Ocean is covered with multi annual ice, very thick ice, and we have been in that uh, very mobile and dynamic uh, drift system with much thinner ice in the central Arctic. Then I uh, also want to mention the Tara expedition, a small French sailing boat uh, with few people on board, um, which carried out uh, extremely important uh, experiments on the ice, but on a much, much smaller scale. It was a small team, not a modern research icebreaker. Now your team, there's the human element that has to be addressed. How did you, how did you uh, plan for the physiological and psychological factor of people being in darkness and being away? I mean, uh, during the course of the expedition, we had 450 different uh, people on board on the vessel. So it's a huge team and a good mix of uh, experienced polar researchers who have been in similar uh, environments uh, many times and uh, who, who knew how to work safely on the ice under these conditions. And uh, a fair fraction of uh, 
young scientist uh, setting out to the Central Arctic sea ice for the first time. So we always uh, had teams uh, composed of uh, very experienced guys with the, with the uh, more recent with the young scientists, um, making sure that everybody is safe out there because it's, it's not easy. And it's also there are risks which we need to avoid while we work on the ice. What were some of the findings that really surprised you? Was there anything that you didn't expect to happen that did? Uh, well, yeah, there were many findings, scientific findings, and, and, and many things that happened which we didn't expect. Uh, the ice was more dynamic, even much more dynamic than we expected it to be. The ice uh, in uh, climate change is becoming thinner and more mobile, and therefore um, we, we really, on a daily basis, had to fix damage to our research camps, the research city, really, uh, which we uh, had uh, put up on the ice because uh, part of it drifted away uh, several hundred meters uh, within within hours sometimes um, in, in shear sounds in the ice and then we had to uh, then repair our power lines and, and data cables. But lots of scientific surprises as well. Overall, uh, I, I know there's going to be years before all the data is, is, is coming out, but what can we take away from this right now? Many, many things. I mean, we returned pretty much exactly one year ago. So we had one year to look into the uh, extremely rich treasure of data. Um, uh, most of the results will come out of the coming few years. But of course, we have uh, important things uh, to report already now. Um, in, in summer, we have seen how quickly the ice disappeared. The uh, retreat of the sea ice uh, during spring of the expedition was earlier than ever. Um, it came back later in fall than ever. And uh, in, in summer, the ice extent, the sea ice extent in the Arctic uh, was below 4 million square kilometers uh, just for the second time. And that's only half of the value uh, that used to be there in the Arctic uh, in the 1970s and the decades before. Um, it just indicates how quickly the ice is, is melting in summer. And then in winter, we really also have been surprised to, to see what's happening in winter. Uh, the temperatures in winter have been, on average, 10 degrees higher than the temperatures which of Nansen's re, uh, reported. Our temperatures were at minus 40 degrees Celsius. Uh, it's by coincidence also minus 40 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, Nansen reported temperatures uh, below minus 50 degrees uh, Celsius frequently. Um, but still, minus 40 degrees Celsius is cold. And we have seen that the freezing in winter is still healthy and very pronounced. Uh, the snow cover on the ice, although the precipitation is increasing, the snow cover is still thin. And the snow isolates the warm ocean from the cold atmosphere. And that means uh, the water column can cool substantially. We had 20 to 30 meters of water at the freezing point. That is a healthy buffer for freezing in winter, even under climate change conditions at this point. You said that there are many uh, scientific discoveries with creatures and things like that. When you're doing your core samples, do you come across any types of microorganisms or bacteria that you didn't know were there or that you did know were there but might be getting released through these greater thaws during the warmer months? 
Absolutely. Uh, the Arctic is a vibrant uh, ecosystem. Lots of uh, microorganisms living uh, in the ice, just under the ice and in the uh, uppermost water column. And we have uh, seen them all. We uh, brought back samples uh, so that we uh, know their DNA uh, sequence and uh, this is work that's going on. We have seen um, fish species which we had not expected in the Arctic, uh, completely changing our understanding uh, of the fish population under the ice. And we have for the first time we have been really able to observe the ecosystem throughout winter and the activity of the ecosystem throughout winter um, and uh, we found a very vibrant and active ecosystem throughout winter it's, it's one of the uh, surprises really professor you mentioned that you've been on other arctic missions before have you noticed any difference between being there before and then now yep climate change in the arctic is so dramatic uh, the warming is uh, at least at least twice as uh, fast as in the rest of the world it's uh, for for most seasons it's three times faster and in winter it's even more pronounced when i traveled to the arctic in the early 90s i started to travel there in 1992 uh, in winter it was a frozen landscape just snow uh, white snow crystals and these wonderful blue icebergs when i now get to the arctic in the winter month uh, to the same location at 80 degrees north where our research station is I have liquid water at my feet. The fjord, which always froze over, uh, was covered by massive sea ice uh, in winter uh, in the 90s, has not frozen over uh, during the past decade. And it's now, uh, it's just liquid water. We go by boat where I used to travel on skis or snowmobiles um, uh, in the 90s. It's a dramatic change. It, uh, the climate change affects the day-to-day -day life of people living in the Arctic already now. Well, Professor, I, I truly got to thank you for your for your life's work and uh, sharing sharing your information. Hopefully, people uh, just aren't listening; they will listen. And uh, uh, thank you for thank you for joining us today. It was a pleasure talking to you. That was one of the world's leading scientists, Dr. Marcus Rex. He leads the section of atmospheric physics of the Alfred Wegener Institute Helmholtz Center for the Polar and Marine Research in Bremerhaven, Germany and is a professor of the Atmospheric Physics University in Potsdam. Also the expedition and cruise leader of Leg 1, 4, and 5, and head of Mosaic. For more on his amazing work, visit mosaic-expedition.org and the Alfred Wegener Institute, awi.de. I'm George Hirsch with today's Good to Know. Most historians credit the Italians with the modern-day pizza. So which country deserves credit for creating the first pie? Baked bread with toppings can be found in almost every region of the world. The word pizza could come from the Greek word pita, meaning pie, or the Langobardic word bizo, meaning bite. It was first recorded in a Latin text dated in Italy in 1997 AD. In 1889, the modern day pizza was crafted by a baker, Raphael Esposito, to honor King Umberto and Queen Margarita while visiting Naples. Today, ingredients such as sweet caramelized onions, tomatoes, and melted cheese is just the beginning of what might seem like a simple food. But make no mistake about it, in the U.S., over 350 slices are eaten every second, while 40% of Americans eat pizza at least once a week. It's more than just pepperoni in New York, seafood in Japan, cream and bacon in Alsace. Every region of the world has a signature pizza, and that's good to know. Food is powerful and has always been an important part of culture. Through food, we can learn about countries' history, traditions, and society. 
It has the ability to shape your journey and define your memories. Food is also an essential part of life and community. It is what makes us who we are. Hey, Alex. Hey, George. How's it going? Good, good, good. You know, Alex, I just had recently had a call with uh, my cousin Marco over in over in, Rome. in Italy. Yeah. yeah, and we had a we had a great conversation catching up on on a bunch of things, but something I think that is really kind of appropriate for today. Um, he travels quite a bit too because he gets one month off a year uh, during the summer, and he usually goes to a different location. But we began talking about our favorite places to travel and where our, our favorite food finds. And, you know, of course, I discussed um, South, South Africa and being out in the, the bush uh, in Turkey, in Greece, um, uh, experience in Ballyliki, Ireland, just having cheese and wine outdoors. But what it really came down to for me was – and it goes back a number of years. This was actually my first journey to Europe. Um, and I was in Germany, then went on to Italy. And I met his grandfather, which is my uncle, Uncle Giuseppe. And they only spoke Italian. And I was very, very bad in any, any uh, uh, Italian. They spoke no English. He gave me a full tour of, of Rome, the Colosseum, didn't speak any English. And then later that night, we went back to their house with my Aunt Anna. And uh, that has to be the best meal I've ever had in my life. Now, I've, you know, and you know, you've been with me. When we go out as chefs, you're always welcomed and they, and they put out the best food. So I've had great food all over the globe. But that, to me, was the best experience because of everything. The quality of the food, being with the family, being around the table. Uh, and it was just simple Roman food. Um, what did you have? Uh, oh, just starting off with, you know, antipasto, which didn't all come out on one big platter. It was individuals, you know, olives and roast peppers and 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 the great Roman artichokes, uh, salt and bocca, uh, uh, carbonara, which is the Roman signature dish and probably the best carbonara I'll, I've ever had in my life. Yeah, but, and uh, the most traditional. I mean, it's just, when you have it there, it's such a clean delicious product. It's not a greasy, fatty, creamy sauce, you know? But even in that moment, and this is many, many years ago, and this was just coming out of, I'd uh, been with the uh, New York culinary team at the culinary Olympics. So I was kind of shot and just looking forward to to chilling with my family in, in, in Rome. Um, it was at that time, and you know when it's happening, this is going to be the best that you, you can ever have. And yeah. those kind of experiences, and I know we've talked about, and you've shared some things with me about a whole variety of places you've gone to, but what is your single place that stands out? Well, it's funny because it's so hard to narrow it down, you know, and I'm sure it took you forever to figure that out. And I would imagine that the family aspect for you is what made that meal so special. Mm -hmm. And I, I had some similar thoughts, you know, I had an amazing layover in Istanbul for 12 hours on a flight to South Africa one time, and I have Ooh. an aunt who is from Istanbul, and her and my uncle just happened to be there, and she took us to a kebab house, and that was incredible. And like you oh. said, eating sausages like dry wars and boar wars and biltong in the bush in South Africa, that was incredible. But again, that was more of like a safari experience, you know? 
So I really had to think, and I called my buddy Mick yesterday, who I did all this traveling mm-hmm. with, to kind of pick his brain because we'd eaten so many meals, and I really want to dial it in, and it came down to two. On one hand, we went to Puerto Rico and visited my cousin, and we went up into the hills, and we had a traditional Puerto Rican pig roast that was roasted mm-hmm. on a spit, and that was my number one for a minute. But you know what? We've roasted whole pigs before. I roasted a whole pig for my family for Christmas four years ago. Uh, You can get pig everywhere. And I realized that one experience that I had that I don't think I was thinking about it being one of the best meals of my life because of the fact that it wasn't a traditional sit-down meal was in Cartagena, Colombia. Oh, Yeah, so we were in Panama for about two weeks to go spearfishing, and it was just a monsoon, and it rained for 12 out of 14 days, and we were like, you know what, let's get out of here. So we fly to Cartagena, and my friend Tom Warner and his wife, Monica, uh, were in Colombia. Monica's Colombian. They got married, and they were there visiting her family. So we weren't supposed to be there for three days. So we got dropped off in the middle of Cartagena in like tourist center. And it was just a nightmare. We were lost in translation. I only spoke like kitchen Spanish. I could basically curse or talk about vegetables. (laughs) And uh, like two days of this and we were like, we got to get out of Colombia. This is the worst. And then Tom and Monica showed up. So she takes us to the old town of Cartagena. And all of a sudden we're in like this beautiful historic district with pastel colored buildings and there'd be two doors on every building one door was gigantic from one they used to have horses and one was small for people and there are balconies like you're in new orleans overlooking the street so we're expecting to get this sit-down dinner at a fancy restaurant because cartagena is a big city and she takes us to this hole in the wall place that just made empanadas and the empanadas themselves were perfect i mean they were amazing as soon as you walked in you could smell just that like tang of shredded beef steamed potatoes in the air there was just an assembly line of women in the back making them from scratch from mixing the dough to rolling them out stuffing them folding them and frying them just that good clean smell of a nice fresh fryer when you get into a place that does real good Mm -hmm. fried food like a fried chicken place here but this was empanadas so we got the empanada, and, and there's nothing too special about an empanada. I mean, they were amazing, but you could go to Queens and have a good empanada. What blew my mind about this place, and I know this is where you'll relate to it, is we're condiment men. We are men of many mm-hmm. sauces, and we enjoy a sauce. And after you were handed your little wax bag with your hot, steaming, crispy empanada in it, you turned around, and there was a table with about 30 different sauces on it. Rainbow colored, everything from aguacates to the traditional red and green spicy salsas. There's this garlic aioli that I have tried to replicate to this day and I never have been able to. It was like your roasted garlic in a homemade mayo on mm. a beef empanada with that crisp. And it just blew my mind. And I kind of realized that sometimes it's just the really simple places. And it was like she rescued us too. You know, we got rescued from the tourist trap and brought into the local, the local empanada spot that was just hopping at lunchtime. And some things, Alex, really are not meant to be replicated. You know, you, you think you can, but it's it's about savoring that experience at that time. Yeah, exactly. Eating utilizes our senses. When we interact with food while traveling, the aromas, textures, and tastes build lasting memories. It can transport you back to a happy place where the people told you a story of a community or a family food and cooking style passed down from generation to generation. For me, every time I eat spaghetti a la carbonara, the iconic dish from Rome, it takes me back to a time spent with my Italian family. It's Dolce Vita on a plate. 
Immersing yourself in new cultures may bring on culture shock, but that can be a good thing. You have the chance to learn more about yourself and the people at your destination. Often the best way to really delve into a new place and culture is by spending some considerable time there. While a quick vacation may give you a glimpse into your destination experiences, during extended stays, you allow the time to properly immerse yourself into a new culture. It's a great way to expand your social circle and meet people you would have never have gotten to know otherwise. Joining us is Joseph Rosendo, six-time Emmy Award-winning host of Travelscope, seen on PBS and Create TV. As a journalist and public speaker, he has traveled the globe sharing the short, happy pursuit of pleasure and other journeys. He's been awarded nine Lowell Thomas Journalism Awards, the Industry Canadian National Award for Tourism Excellence, the Globe and Mail Travel Award, the Northern Lights Broadcast Award, and also been honored by the Government of France for his decades of travel journalism. Joe, it's so wonderful to be back together again. How are you doing? It's good to see you, George. Well, I've told Alex so many stories about our time together and conversations, but one of the things that always touches me is is your background and your Cuban heritage. Share a little bit of that with us. Oh, well, my grandparents were uh, born in uh, Cuba. Uh, well, my grandparents were born in Cuba. After the uh, Spanish-American War, they came to the United States. Uh, uh, one of them went to Key West, Florida. The other one went to Tampa, Florida and got into the cigar industry and and uh, had a very, very close relationship with him. And then uh, he, he met my grandmother there and they had a family in Tampa, then eventually came down to Miami. And that's where my father, who had come up from Key West, met. And uh, yeah, it's been a, a very important part of my life. Um, you mentioned uh, the musings, the short, happy pursuit of pleasure and other journeys, the, the book that I was able to do finally after a long, long time. And during the pandemic, gave me the time to do that. And sure. in there, I, I, I really do uh, talk to them, uh, talk about them and relate uh, how they, their background and their, their interest in life helped and uh, the things that they needed in life. Uh, helped get me into the travel industry. I mean, it really um, back, goes back to my childhood days when we would have our one-day vacation in Key West from Miami with my father. And it was so important. It was such an important part of our life that we just uh, we just filled it up with as much as we could, and it became what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. And I think that's how I, why I became a travel writer. So so that, that, that and, and also... The cultural experiences that I had were so rich and so much a part of my of my childhood mm -hmm. that I I hungered to have that multi, uh, that those kinds of cultural experiences wherever I went after that. And in 1969, I went to Europe for the first time as a, a member of a UCLA USO show to entertain the troops who were in Germany at that time. And uh, that just opened up my eyes to that that European culture. And um, it just made me want to say, whatever this is, I want more. And, uh, you know, I just wanted and I, I tried to figure out how to make it my life. And uh, 
thanks with, for my help from my, my wife, uh, Julie Rosenda, uh, we were able to, to do the PBS show, but I, you know, I was a travel writer and did a radio show for 23 years. So I've been in travel, uh, journalistically since 1980. And I, I think it's, and that's, I, that kind of formed my life. I really, that was really where I started thinking about the, the gist of the show and how the show should introduce people to people and and let us know that we're really basically all the same and the world is a, a wonderful place that we all live in no matter what you hear and see it still is that place and people the connections between people is what is what it's what makes it that's why i use that quote from mark twain travel is fatal to prejudice bigotry and narrow-mindedness after every show and it's been kind of my mantra it was in the radio show. I would use it too. So it's been wow. my mantra for about, I don't know, 40 years. <laughs> <laughs> Keep it. I think it works. <laughs> now in your, in your TV show, you, you share, uh, it's just amazing. You do immerse yourself in the cultures and it's all over the globe. Uh, is there any that stick out to your mind uh, that kind of brings you back to the same experiences as a child with your Cuban family? Well, um, I would say, you know, and I, I highlighted in the book, uh, Musings, the short, happy pursuit of mm -hmm. pleasure and other journeys that, that, that just came out. I, I highlight the fact that, you know, when we travel, we should change ourselves. We should augment ourselves. We should come back larger than we did. And I don't just mean having nice uh, croissants in France and come back bigger in that me. I mean, come back spiritually bigger, uh, expanded in, in, in many ways. And um, that, that the cultural experience that I had with my grandparents, I, hide, I have a story in the book called A Christmas Smoke uh, uh, about my experience with my grandfather. He was preparing our Noche Buena Christmas a celebration where all Latin cultures have at Christmas Eve. And that seemed to be so different than this, the culture around me. And mm -hmm. yet it still had to do with what was important to people. And all of those festivals, all those Cuban festivals that I celebrated as a kid were about bringing people together. So when I travel around the world, I like to put myself in situations, and I recommend for my, my viewers and, and listeners and readers that they put themselves in a situation where they can be a little bit uncomfortable, perhaps, but it's something that's going to expand them. And the way you get expanded is by meeting people who, who are not exactly like you and that you can learn from, and you can take something more than souvenirs back from your uh, trip and use it in your own life. So I would say that I learned that those things that were part of my culture and uh, were things that would serve me well later in life. And uh, some of the things I had to dump in order, like, sure. you know, like we're on a trip, some things you have to you have to lighten the load and other things you take and they're useful to use later in your trips. And of course, the, the correlation between a trip and life it's not that far apart, I found, when I was re writing the book, because when I started writing about my travel experiences, and these are a collection of stories that I've done over the years, and I started to notice that, hey, you know, this this, this travel experience is very much like the experience of, of living. 
And they're not that much a difference. And that's why travel is such a, a rich experience to be having because it, 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 it does, it's, it helps you so much in your, in your day-to-day life. It opens your mind. It makes you deal with people and life in, 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 a, new, in a new way. What was one of the most transformative places or experiences that you had traveling? Did you ever have a real sense of culture shock or really come back from somewhere and had a different experience than what you thought you would before you went? Yeah, there's so there's so many, Alex. The first one, of course, I was a young kid from a you know a young country going uh, to Germany, who in, in 1969, so not too far from too far from the war, and I, I walked into that, that experience and the history. And of course, Germany had been devastated from the war, so a lot of that sure. had been wiped away. Right. And and I didn't later in my travels I would even experience that more particularly in the Asian countries but the history was so different and rich and long so many wonderful things had happened there and so many horrible things too I remember going to Dachau concentration camp and just being overwhelmed by man's inhumanity to man if you will and also man's ability to be able to pers- persevere in the face of unbelievable horrors that experience ripped me right out of where I was. When I went to India, I like to say about India, India is a place that in three blocks, you'll have 33 things happen to you that have never happened to you in your life. You'll oh smell, goodness. you'll see, you'll hear, you'll feel, you'll feel, which is real important. I mean, India is one of those, was for me, one of those countries where, you know, some places you can go to, and Europe is a little bit like this in many places, and you can be at a hotel, and it could be at a hotel anywhere. And you can go to a cafe, and it can be, well, we have a cafe like that back home in L.A. No, yeah, yeah. India, the minute you walk outside the door, it grabs you by the throat and rips you out there, and you're <laughs> in it. And, you know, and you, there's no way you can miss that you're in somewhere else. Unlike any place you've ever been, and for a, a Western person from our country, so th- that was a day-to-day experience. And when I went to Israel and I went to Jerusalem, and, and and I was just in Jerusalem for three days, but at the end of those three days, I felt like my head was going to explode <laughs> from the same thing, from all the things I was learning and all the 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 history and the religious connection and the conflicts. And the struggles, it was like humanity raw. Yeah. And I was just walking through the, the tourist part of, of Jerusalem. You know, those two experiences really, you know, we're, we're going to go shoot a show in South Padre Island in Texas. Now, you would say, Texas, what's going to happen to you there? Yeah. The answer to that is, who knows? It seems like that's going to be a place I'm going to really know the people about, you know, be very familiar. No, no big earth shattering things are going to happen there. I'm not sure of that. And so I I travel with an open heart, open mind. And uh, that could be the life changing, another life changing experience. You just you just really don't know. Of course, the ones that are so different from your normal place at home, they're going to give you a greater opportunity for instant change. And uh, Rwanda after the genocide, to go there and tell that story as part of our show. We told that story, but we also told the story of the mountain gorilla. And we went in, within 15, 15, 10 feet of mountain gorillas. That's incredible. I mean, that was mind-blowing experience. But the, the, 
the genocide story and the recovery from the genocide and what human beings are capable of is so life affirming. So there's so many things like that. So I could I could spend hours telling you about the, the kinds of changes that took place in me depending on where we were. But my advice is stretch yourself. It's always nice to lie on a beach and have a, a margarita, but <laughs> stretch, stretch yourself. That's why you're on the trip. Push yourself and try to find something that's going to shake you up a little. Is there any place on your bucket list that you haven't been yet that you want to go? Believe it or not, you're going to uh, you're going to go like that to me. I haven't been to New Zealand. Oh wow! I'd like to go to New Zealand. Yeah, I know. Every, everybody goes to New Zealand, but me. I, I've, I've never been to New Zealand, and there are a lot of places in, in, in Africa I would like to go and explore too. I've never been to Kenya. And people tell me about the wonderful, we've been in South Africa, we've been in Zambia, we've been on the, on the you know, we've been in Rwanda, as I mentioned, and, and we've been up in the north in Ethiopia. So we've done some of the African experience. You know, what we try to do, I know all of us try to do, and, and, and George, I know you do too, you try to break people's preconceptions about right. things. That, right. that becomes a mission. I'm here so that you don't think that Africa is all the same. My gosh, not only is that not true, that is all, not only is, is every country an island. Got it would be like saying different. L.A. is all the same. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> every neighborhood is this different. Yeah. You know, when you exactly. go to, when, you, when you're, every, every village is different. I, I wish I had three lives. I've just celebrated my 75th birthday yesterday. And uh, I wish I had three times 75 ahead of me because I think I could use them up. Well, Joseph, we're so fortunate to have the blessing of your shows. They are always informative. They're fun. Um, they they put a little spark in you as far as humanity, just like you've pointed out. So thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Joe. If you uh, would like to know more about Joseph Rosendo and his Emmy award-winning show, Travel Scope, visit pbs.org or createtv.org to get his TV schedules. Listen to Joseph's podcast at travelscope.net. And of course, course, I'm getting a copy of that Musings book. It's going to be Shamelessly one, of my, one of my top items on my bookshelf. Joseph, thank you so much. Thank you, George. No question, traveling to a new place and enveloping yourself in a new culture will change you. It's a transformative experience that subjects you to a host of new situations. These conditions and moments change the way you think, the way you act, and the things in which you're capable. Ultimately, there's no escaping how these foreign experiences can shape you for the better. For more food, culture, and lifestyle tips, guest interviews, and our podcast, visit WLIW.org radio and ChefGeorgeHirsch.com. And join our conversation on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at WLIWFM and at George Hirsch. One pots or casseroles are a one-dish meal consisting of rice, potatoes, or pasta. They can be elaborate, like a beef bourguignon, indulgent as lasagna, or a cassoulet, and economical and homey as mac and cheese. Cassoulet, pasta fajoule, al forno, brajol, there's so many, even coco van. Alex, what's your favorite casserole? I know you're not really a casserole. <laughs> <laughs> 
Or right, we were no. going over a menu recently, and I said, we're going to put some casseroles out. And you went, I hate casseroles. No, no I, I, yeah, I need to really. <laughs> no, you um, don't. Let's back up on that. Yeah, I need to define that a little bit because, like, I love cassoulet, and I love mac and cheese baked. I love shepherd's pie. You know all those things. I never really put them in the category of casserole. Mm-hmm. So I think my problem was, as soon as you said casserole, two things pop into my head. Tuna mm-hmm. casserole and green bean casserole. And those are two things that I just find disgusting. I <laughs> I love green beans, and we've spent so much time on local farms getting beautiful green beans All and right. blanching them and shocking them, and you get that green, crisp crunch. And then to take something like that, can it, let it turn gray and mushy, dump it into a pan with cream and fake fried onions, and then bake it in the oven is like a food sin to me. And then tuna, I mean – you know, we live next to the ocean. We're we're lucky. I, I had a fisherman friend call me yesterday to tell me that they caught some bluefin and I, I'm just getting handed free tuna this time of the year left and right. So to take tuna out of a can, squeeze that cat food smelling juice out of it, and then dump that in with some egg noodles and, and cream waste and bake some it. Perfectly good potato chips that had done no <laughs> evil to anybody. See, I knew you'd get on board that. with this casserole <laughs> thing with me. It just took the potato chips. No, no. But there's one dish it that I that I have, and you, you come up with a recipe, you put it out, and people love it, and then you use it for a couple different areas. It goes into a book or a TV show. But the tried and true stuff is always a TV crew behind yeah. the scenes what they jump in on, okay? So this one dish, and now they have, you know, Alex, they have plenty of craft for services and food. You know, there's there's cooks cooking for them. They're getting the food, all the set food, because it's all edible. Yeah. Um, but it was this one dish one day, and there's like tons of food. They're all outside scoffing down bowls of this white bean casserole. Okay, I could get behind that. It's a yeah. stew. It's it's a baked. <laughs> I think it all comes down to it's a one pot. It's a one pot dish, and it's something that when you put all the flavors together, you know the 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 white beans, the sausage, the you know either vegetable broth or or chicken broth, and you just let that simmer gently. Some potatoes, onions, a few other root vegetables. You know, you just have a winner. You just have a winner, especially, you know, during during the cooler, cooler parts of the year. It's yeah, hearty, it's, warm, comforting, and economical. Yeah, it just makes you feel good. And I think that it's kind of like a trick, too, because the word casserole seems to get attached onto the worst of the casseroles. I think there's one thing you'll agree with me on. Your idol, Mr. George Crumb, mm-hmm. would not agree with that use of potato chips. No, no, he would he would roll over in his grave right now. He would. He would <laughs> he would just it would just cancel it all out. So out of all the casseroles of one pots, okay, now that we we've got you on the side, they're okay. What what is your favorite? What is the one that you would just whip up cooking? I know what people love. I know they love your shepherd's pie. Uh yeah. Shepherd's pie is always a big hit. And actually, that was always a great way for me and you to use up a lot of farm vegetables. When we were getting to the end of the year and we just had an abundance of donated produce that we wanted to make sure got eaten, we would make a giant batch of vegetables to shepherd's pie. Oh my God, when you use the butternut in there, it's like it's like a meat. It's You don't even know that there isn't meat in it. It's almost like a turkey uh, kind of gravy. But I think for me, if we're considering stews in the world of casseroles, it's definitely beef stew. And when I make beef stew, I like to put it in a casserole style pot or even a large cast iron, 
like one of the ones you'd take camping and I put it the whole pot right in the oven closed and I don't cook my stews on top of the oven, not my beef stew. So if you get good chuck or top round or even short ribs or I, I make it with oxtail, braise it in some good beef stock. I put pearl onions in there, carrots, celery, onion. I like to finish it with peas, do a mm. little sachet bag of thyme, garlic, rosemary, throw that in there. And I just put the oven on like 325, throw the whole pot in there with the lid on it. It cooks really evenly. You get a really good thick consistency to your beef stew and that sticks to your bones. That's what that's what I love when I think of food like this. You know the difference between a really good beef stew and a beef bourguignon? What's that? Probably ten dollars on a on a menu. <laughs> <laughs> now, this is a question that I had for you while we were looking at this, because as I was opening up my world of what a casserole is and isn't, I came uh -huh. across a lot of uh, sweet dessert casseroles. And you are a dessert man; you are a master baker. So, do you consider an apple cobbler a casserole? Or I've seen French toast breakfast casseroles. Would you consider a frittata a casserole? Savory or sweet? Well, the frittata could be savory and the French toast and the apple cobbler would be yeah. sweet. Actually, a bread pudding is considered like a like a cobbler. And um, yeah, I, cobbler. Yeah, it's a one. It's basically a one pot. It's a basically a one bake. Yeah, I'm Why just not? wondering where the yeah. line is drawn. Is Could we start a new trend of dessert casseroles? Well, from now on and here on, we put on the record, okay? <laughs> it's on casseroles. the record. It's serious. <laughs> yeah, oh, it's it's on the record. If you okay. say it's on the record, there's not a court that can throw it out. Yeah, you know there's that? no going back now. <laughs> <laughs> not the culinary kangaroo court that we would but go to. I like this idea of a French toast breakfast casserole because you don't have to individually do all the French toast. You bake the thing, cut it. I mean, it's basically bread pudding, but you just cut it up and serve it to people. <laughs> it really is. <laughs> well, let me see. You wouldn't use like a sweet bread or a rich bread um, like challah uh, challah bread. Uh, to make the French toast, you would just put the hollow bread in. Yeah, whatever. Actually, I have used I have used leftover French toast in bread pudding, which is in bread pudding. That is outstanding. outstanding. It's yeah. a great starter for it. Invite a few people over, make too much French toast, and then just have leftovers. Today, a casserole is more than yesterday's canned cream of something. When prepared with fresh ingredients and slow-cooked, it offers a comforting and convenient one-pot meal. Glad to have you join us on George Hirsch Lifestyle Radio. I'm George Hirsch. And I'm Alex Getzfried. Our producer is Delaney Hafner, along with production support from Kyle Lynch. Supervising producer is Allie Gimble. George Hirsch and Diane Michelli are co-executive producers. George Hirsch Lifestyle Radio is a co-production of Hirsch Media and Audio Engagement Group, LLC. Thanks so much for tuning in to George Hirsch Lifestyle Radio, the show that celebrates how our lives are connected through food and culture. For more episodes and our podcast, visit wiw.org radio and chefgeorgehirsch.com and your favorite streaming and podcast platforms. We'll see you next week, right here on George Hirsch Lifestyle Radio.